Welcome to a very special bonus episode of the Tolkien Professor podcast. On Thursday, April 15th, Professor Michael Drought of Wheaton College in Massachusetts came to give a lecture at Washington College. Those of you who are familiar with Professor Drought's work will already know what a treat you're in for. For the rest of you, get ready to hear from one of the most dynamic and learned teachers and scholars of Tolkien in the country today. On behalf of the Sophie Kerr Committee and the Washington College English Department, welcome. I am honored and excited to introduce Michael Drought to you today. Professor Drought is the Prentice Professor of English and Chair of the English Department at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. Professor Drought is not only a highly celebrated teacher and speaker, he is also one of the most active and original scholars in Tolkien and medieval literature today. He's one of the founding editors of Tolkien Studies, the foremost scholarly journal dedicated to the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, and he also edited the J.R.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia. In 2003, he published the book Beowulf and the Critics, in which he brought some of Tolkien's remarkable scholarly work on the Anglo-Saxon epic Beowulf to print for the very first time. Like Tolkien before him, Professor Drought is a very accomplished scholar of Anglo-Saxon literature and language. His book, How Tradition Works, subtitled A Meme-Based Cultural Poetics of the Anglo-Saxon Tenth Century, looks at how traditions are formed, how they change, and why they stick around. Professor Drought has also done wonderful work to support and encourage the study and reception of Anglo-Saxon as a spoken tradition. In his spare time, he has made audio recordings of the entire Anglo-Saxon poetic corpus, which he has made available for free in podcast form. Professor Drought's voice is also known to many through his series of audio lectures on the modern scho- in, in the Modern Scholars series by Recorded Books Incorporated, where he has published lecture courses on Chaucer, the history of the English language, fantasy literature, and the Anglo-Saxon world. His many current projects feature some fascinating innovations in medieval research, including work he is doing in partnership with statisticians and computer scientists on philological analysis of literature, called lexomics, and some research research he is conducting in partnership with a biologist colleague on the use of DNA analysis in medieval manuscript studies. He is also in the process of writing a few textbooks, one called Philology Reborn and one called Grammar for Fun and Profit. Today's lecture is titled, Whole Worlds Out of Single Words, Tolkien and Language. It is my very great pleasure to bring you Professor Michael Drought. Fias shaft hunden hithas propria bed, weoks under wolknum, weer mundum tha, o that him ai huilch um setendra, over ron rada, huran shoulder, gomban gudan. That was God kinning. And that was how J.R.R. Tolkien used to start his lecture on Beowulf at Oxford. He would throw open the back doors of the classroom exactly when the time was supposed to start, and he would recite in a booming voice the opening lines of Beowulf as he walked down the aisle, walked over, came up to the lectern, and said, he would keep going. I stopped in line 11. He went through line 50. And my theory was that by that point, two-thirds of the students had dropped the course, and he had fewer papers to grade and more time to write Lord of the Rings. I have tried doing that. It hasn't yet succeeded, but someday... Well, what I'm here to talk to you about today, and and thank you, Professor Olson, for a really overly kind introduction. Uh, What I want to talk to you about today is philology in its oldest 
sense. So philology, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary for philology, it will say some convoluted stuff about love of this, love of that, but really it simply means the love of words. So setting it aside as a discipline, which we'll talk about a little bit, and setting it aside as the foundation of all humane letters, as Tolkien said it was, let's just talk about philology a little bit as the love of words. And it's my contention that this love of words, of individual words, and that's very important. You can be a philologist and love sentences and love great works of literature, and I think we do if we are in the English profession or in the liberal arts in any way. We love the way the words are put together. But to love and be interested in individual words. And I'm going to argue and try to convince you that Tolkien's gnawing on particular individual words drove his creativity. That you can often find that something peculiar in Tolkien comes from one word. I'm going to show you a bunch of these words. But I'm going to start out by showing you where Tolkien might have gotten this approach from. Because I think it's from his day job. And of course I think that because I sort of have the same day job of being a professor of medieval literature and someone who studies language for a living. I mean, what a scam that is, right? I get to you know, get paid to teach smart students and study what I want. It's, it's amazing. But to do that, there's also a discipline involved. And that discipline is more obvious in medieval literature just because... It's foreign to us in many ways. And we have to work hard to understand what's there. And sometimes we can't understand what's there. The great innovation of philology was to open up things that we hadn't seen before. So let me go over what's going on in this little bit of Beowulf that I read to you. I'll translate it for you. Hey, or lo, or yo, whatever what means. It literally means what, but it's, it means poems starting now and has been translated as hark and low. And Seamus Heaney, in his famous translation, translates it as so. And I have to tell a little, make fun of my own tribe here for a second. So he starts, Seamus Heaney starts out his translation of Beowulf translating what as so. And the Anglo-Saxonists and Saxonet, the Anglo-Saxonist listserv, started discussing the Heaney translation when it came out. Six weeks later, we were still discussing the word so and whether that was the right word. And the New Yorker found out about this and made this whole little thing, making fun of the Anglo-Saxonists, that it took us six weeks to get to the first word. Uh, I thought that was just about right. And, you know, we should probably be on, like, line 50 by now if we'd really gone through at a proper pace. But anyway, the setting starts out like this. Hey, we have heard of the power of the kings of the Spear Danes in the Elder Days, the kings of the people, how those noble ones did valorous deeds. Often shield-shafing crushed his enemies, overturned the mead benches, terrified the earls, long after he was first found as an orphan without possessions. And it goes on from there. What this does is it sets up the opening for all of Beowulf. It sets up the entire poem. It says that shield-shafing, the founder of the shielding dynasty, which presumably if you were back in the time of the Beowulf poet, whenever that is, and by the way, I've actually seen a bar fight break out over the date of Beowulf, and I know of one marriage that split up over the date of Beowulf, and I am not making that up. Um, I'll explain that more later. I'm sorry, if you're a late dater, you just can't be married to an early dater, and it just won't work out, you know. Seriously. Um, But what's going on in this introduction to the poem is that the founder of the Shielding Dynasty, which if you were in the time of the Beowulf poet, you would have known who they were. You would have known that they were the great dynasty of the North, 
And the founder is Shild, who came from over the sea with no possessions. He's a kind of prototypical orphan who becomes great. And Shild was terrifying. He dominated all his enemies. He rearranged their furniture, overturned the mead benches. He's the first, but not the only, violent interior decorator in English history. <laughs> and this gives us an idea of what the poem is about. It's a great way to start. And it's very you know, loud and it works. But there's a problem. Let's go to line six. And you'll notice in the handout, it says, Egsode erlas, and there's little square brackets around erlas, or around the A-S in it. And there's the reason for that, and those square brackets, by the way, are very rare in the edition of Beowulf. The, the editors don't supply things completely out of nowhere most of the time. We'll change things around. We'll say that there's a, ty- a typo. Well, that's a... Manuo, I guess, a, a handwriting error. There's a scribal problem. But we're very hesitant to just make things up. But here, somebody's just had to make things up. And here's the problem. Okay, The manuscript of Beowulf reads, Exode Ero. And you say, so what? That's because you're not yet philologists. But by the end of this talk, you'll have taken your first steps on the path to the dark side. The problem is that that verb, exode, needs a plural object, okay? It needs to be exoda, terrified, something plural. And eral is singular. So terrified, plural, the singular. That's, that's a problem. The, the biggest problem is that we're supposed to believe that either the poet of Beowulf, or certainly more likely the scribe, there are two scribes in Beowulf, by the way. One does the first 1900 or so lines of the poem, and the other does the rest, and these are creatively named A and B. And it's a real mystery, too, because by his handwriting, we can tell that B is older than A, and B goes back and fixes all of A's work. And some people even think that B is the, the poet of Beowulf, so why was having someone else write his poem and then fixing the mess that person made of it? Nobody knows. But th- th- this is a problem, and, and it's been recognized as a problem since Albert Sievers, the great German philologist of the 19th century. And what we think is that when the, when the scribe came to copy the poem, he had something in front of him that didn't make sense to him. Okay, what was that? Was it exode erl, just what's in the manuscript, and he copied it anyway? Or was it something else? Well, what Tolkien thought was that what he had in front of them, if you look down, I've given you an example, is that he had something like exode erla. And that he figured, since remember, all phonetic spelling was phonetic back then, there wasn't any specific spelling of Errol, so, uh, oh, geez, I know what he did. He's, I know this previous guy, he put an E on the end there. He didn't need it because it's not in the date of case, and I'll just fix it, even though he made a, a bigger uh, mess there. And why would that be? Well, Tolkien thought, coming from uh, a couple other people, that actually what had been in the manuscript, what should have been there, was a reference to the Heruli. And now you're all saying, of course, the Heruli, I should have known. Who were the Heruli? Well, the Heruli were a tribe of warriors in around the North Sea area, same with the Danes. And you know what? The Danes, according to some of the other histories, conquered and completely destroyed the Heruli. And so, wait a second. If it is the Heruli, this would make sense, wouldn't it? Shield Schaefing didn't just conquer some generic earls somewhere. Why, why is he conquering earls? Okay, warriors maybe, but it's usually a specific thing. Instead, it's saying that Shield Schaefing wiped out the Heruli, which we know the Danes actually did. 
And that starts to change how you think of Beowulf. And in fact, some editors have gone wrong with all of this thinking about Beowulf because Friedrich Kleber, the greatest editor of Beowulf, said the mention of an individual tribe, I should do it in his German accent, the mention of an individual tribe would be extremely doubtful in this place. That's all he says, right? Just because his idea of the poem is, well, you wouldn't have an individual tribe mentioned there. Tolkien did not agree for two reasons. And the first is that he was a philologist and he didn't like the philology, the sound change problem of AS on that Earl. He did not think it was a complete fit. He didn't like the way it worked. But secondly, if you think about Tolkien's work, is Tolkien ever going to say, terrified the elves, when he can say, terrified the Teleri, the Vanyar, and the, you know, and, and bring in a whole bunch of specifics. And why? Because Tolkien thought, rightfully so, I think, that everybody in these time periods knows who those people are. We don't know them now. We think they're obscure. They weren't obscure, the people living there. That's like saying, you know, terrified the New Jerseyans or something like that. You know, it's just not a big deal for that time period. But what's happened is we've lost so much that then we seem to want something, and I think Kleber definitely does, wants something that's more generic as the introduction. Why would he bother to mention an individual tribe? And Tolkien would say, because they destroyed an individual tribe. This also tells us something, I have to get on my little side thing here, uh, important about Beowulf, which is that the scribe of Beowulf, who's writing this down around the year 1000, has no idea who the Heruli were. Later on, the scribe makes a complete botch of the word Merovingian. He copies it as something like Meroviengus Milts Ingesmitha, which isn't even Anglo-Saxon, it's just a garbage mess, and then it tries to fix it with some other things, and it's still a mess. You know why? He didn't know who a Merovingian was. But the poet did, because the poet wrote Merovingian. In fact, one of the cool things of philology is we can look at a mess on the page and somebody can figure out, oh, it's Merovingian. It almost seems like magic. But instead, what you've done is you've applied a bunch of rules, which I'll explain in a little bit, some of them. Because they have a direct bearing on how Tolkien approached a word. So, what we have in Beowulf, I think, is we've got a poem that was copied in around the year 1000, and I think it was written much earlier. And Tolkien thought that too, so there. Um, actually, everybody thought that until around, the 19, around 1980 when there was a big conference at Toronto that, was, that I'm writing a paper right now that argues that this is a complete, was a complete conspiracy. That there was a way, an attempt to set up a false view that nobody believed in the poem being old anymore. And the, the speakers at the conference were very carefully picked. So like the 20 people in the entire world who thought Beowulf was 10th century were all gathered in one place. And then this was published. See, well, look, of all these 35 papers, you know, 27 of them say that Beowulf is late. It must be late. Well, the rest, everyone else is standing around going, what? What just happened? So it was too bad Tolkien wasn't there to, to put an end to that nonsense. But, and the, the other point here is that words are really important individual words. And this is the benefit of being a medievalist and then of going to, to Tolkien and, and to looking at other literature, that single words matter a lot. It's sometimes hard to see that, right? It's, it's hard to see that when you're reading, I don't know, someone really good but modern that just flows by, like reading Toni Morrison or reading Faulkner or something. It's hard to think of one word because it's this you know, barrage of, of words and, and sound. But, but one word makes a real difference. In fact, there's a, there was a huge religious dispute over one comma in the Bible. 
um, because it makes a big difference about whether you're saved by works alone or by works in faith and so forth. And well, Protestantism, Catholicism, one one comma, right? And and this is this is the, the joy of being a philologist because you you can do that all the time and you can figure out why things are what they are. So. I want to try to explain how this happened then, because the, the words were so important, and a philologist like Tolkien could look at the words, apply his knowledge of how languages change over time, and figuring out what should be in the manuscript that wasn't there. In fact, Tolkien talks about, in the, in the book I just edited a new edition of, Beowulf and the Critics, he talks about the great scholar N.F.S. Grundtvig. Uh, he's now known for writing the Danish national anthem and a lot of hymns and stuff, but he was the first really great scholar to work on Beowulf, and Grundtvig corrected somebody's edition of the poem without ever having seen the manuscript. So somebody had worked on the manuscript, Thorkland worked on the manuscript for years, published it, and Mr. Grundtvig comes out, yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong too. And that line, that's wrong. It's like, but how? You haven't even seen it. He's like, I know it's wrong. It turned out he was right. So that's what you could do as a philologist. You could fix things, and you could find things new. And how could you do that? Well, it really started with... Jacob Grimm, Jacob Grimm of the Grimm's brothers and their fairy tales. Uh, Jacob Grimm founded, uh, and really before him there were a couple other scholars called uh, Rasmus Rask and Franz Bopp. I love these names, Franz Bopp. Uh, if I ever found, if I'm ever stupid enough to found another journal, it's going to be called Bopp. It'll be short for boring old philological papers, but no one will know that. So I'll put his face on the cover, but. These great early philologists started to, not just to notice that there were similar words in related languages. Everyone had done that. Anyone who spoke European languages knew that counting to ten was fairly similar in Spanish and Italian and Latin and so forth, and, and that there were a lot of, of commonalities. What Grimm figured out was the rule underlying this. Jakob Grimm is the Charles Darwin of the humanities. He figured out the thing behind language. Before Grimm, the whole thing about language changes was the Tower of Babel. That was it. That's why you have, you know, languages different where the Tower of Babel. Grimm, and just like for Darwin, before Darwin, it was Noah's Ark, right? This is how the animals got to where they are and how they're different. Darwin figured out the rule behind it, and Grimm did the same thing. And what, what he figured out was that there were consistent changes and that he could explain them in terms of the articulation of the sounds in the mouth. So I'll give you an example here. Um, I'll ask for some audience participation. What is the word for fish? In Italian, in Spanish, anyone know Portuguese? Okay, but you see that there's a few, right? What's the word for foot in Spanish? How about how about Greek or Latin? Ped, right, right, for and, and pes. Uh, what about the word for father? Padre, right. So, are you seeing a pattern here? There's a lot of words that start with P in the Latinate side of things, and when they come into the Germanic side of things, they start with F. And what Grimm did, so people have probably had noticed that too, but Grimm noticed a series of, of series of parallels there. So things that had that are P's in Romance languages in Latin are F's in German. Things that are in Sanskrit are BH. For example, change in a consistent way. And what he realized is what are called the fricatives, okay, or the, sorry, the stops. So consonants where you stop the flow of air, like p and b, change into fricatives. 
And fricatives turn into something else. And he drew this nice little wheel and it explained things. And he realized that, that you could get whole languages from a, from a proto-Indo-European root and you could trace them down their, their trails. You could figure out what their ancestors must have been. And you could even, and this was the part that, that I love, you could even explain the exceptions. So we have all these father words that begin with P's, right? Padre and Pater and so forth. And in Germanic, they're F. But in Russian and Polish, they're O, Atsa in, in Russian, right? Someone, when they discovered Gothic, we're going through the Gothic material, found out that there's, most of the time, there's a father word that's, that's with a P, Pater. But a couple occasions, there's a father word that begins with an A, Ata. And you may know Ata by his other pronunciation, Attila, which means little father. Interestingly, he's Attila the... And you know, right, that the Huns and the Goths were mortal enemies. So why is Attila's name in Gothic? It means little father in Gothic. Gothic mercenaries, probably. This is, Christopher Tolkien was worked on, on this a little bit too. Gothic mercenaries serving the Huns named Attila the little father. So, but that name Atta, which means father, which is in the Gothic version of the Lord's Prayer, that comes down. So what you had is the P gets lost. You get from Peter, right? You get Atar. You can see how otter can come to ata, and then you get atsa in Russian and otsha in Polish and so forth. And this is, I have to say, endlessly fascinating. It's almost any word. Someone asks me about a word, I'm getting out the etymological dictionary, I'm get looking this to find it, because you want to know how these things go back. Because if you do it right, it takes you back to the Stone Age. And you think I'm kidding about this. The word in Old Church Slavonic for hammer... Which, which is our source for hammer, right? It's kami, and it means stone. And if you think about it, a hammer is originally a stone that someone is banging onto something. Or another example, the word daughter. If you take it back into Sanskrit, it's duhitar. It means the little milker, the one who goes out and milks the goats or the cows in the morning. That was the job of the daughter. And you're talking about a prehistoric, no-writing society, and you're recovering things from that, from Indo-European, from the words it does have and the words it doesn't have. We can figure out a lot about where the Indo-Europeans came from. So they may have eventually ended up settling all of India, as well as Europe, or they came from somewhere cold. They have words for snow. They don't have words for monkey, banana, rice, anything that grows in really well, olives, things that grow in warm places. <laughs> They have words for oak and pine and ash tree, but not for palm and so forth. So with just language and these these rules, these philological rules, you can figure out things. And Tolkien loved this. In fact, Tolkien's first real job after he'd served in uh, World War I was working for the Oxford English Dictionary, where he wrote the definition of walrus. I'm not making this up either. If you want to go read something by Tolkien, you open up the Oxford English Dictionary. He wrote the definition of walrus and many other words beginning with W because the dictionary had gotten to W by the time that, that Tolkien started, started working on it. So how does this, his work, his day job, connect to his art, the thing that, that brings most people to Tolkien? I'm not crazy enough to think that most people are interested in Tolkien because he was one of the greatest philologists of the 20th century. Uh, they're interested in Tolkien the same way I got interested in Tolkien because he wrote about hobbits and elves and balrogs and rings and black riders and, and all these other amazing things. Well, there's sort of two paths that, that his interest in language abstractly comes in. And one of those is what he called private lang. 
which he'd started even as a child and really started working on right before uh, World War I, which was inventing his own languages. And he's got a great essay of this called A Secret Vice when he realized it wasn't just him. He was sitting in a camp in like some, you know, being mustered around for World War I stuff and he heard this little man sitting on the other side saying, yes, I think I shall indicate the accusative with a prefix. And he realized that that guy was making up his own private language. And there's, there's actually a kind of interesting body of research on private languages. You might know Klingon, right? Yes, right? Where there are speakers of Klingon and Klingon poetry. And this all, at least some of it comes out of a joke in the Star Trek where, where Worf says that uh, Hamlet's pretty good, but it's even better in the original Klingon. And so somebody set out to translate Hamlet into Klingon and, and it's, it's gone from there. So there's, there's people who work in Klingon invented languages, all the Elvish languages that Tolkien invented. Esperanto is an invented language. And, and there's others. It was a, it was a, popular thing there's there's and now with the internet there's much more of it going on just because people can communicate with each other i know of three different medievalists who have their own invented languages um that, that that they work on and so it's 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 really that's one direction it comes in tolkien once said that the only reason he wrote the lord of the rings was to give his invented languages some speakers because you know he had these beautiful languages he's made up but it was also that was a deeper point was that he needed to give them a history and a mythology to make the languages make sense in, in his mind, you needed to not just have speakers, but you had to have change. And when you start to see some of those things in the history of the Middle Earth, the 19 different languages that he eventually, some of them only have like four words in existence, but you know where he, or he wouldn't, it wasn't enough to just say, well, this language turned into this. He would postulate like nine intermediate steps and this cross-contamination from this, and then they moved off, and then this particular group developed a special pronunciation of S, and, and I'm, I'm not making that stuff up either. The other way that Tolkien, that this comes in through Tolkien, and, and I should say, with those languages, I think Tolkien had the most acute phonesthetic sense of any 20th century writer except for Joyce, and maybe as much as Joyce. And that's, you know, okay, that's what my colleagues say. You're crazy. James Joyce is the greatest artist of the 20th century. Gerard Tolkien wrote about hobbits. But in terms of a phonesthetic sense, a sense of connecting sound to the thing, which is really the fundamental basis of all poetry and, and all literature. Tolkien had a sense, that's why when he makes up a word, a place, whether it's Mordor or Lothlorien or Everest or any of these other, you know, million, not millions, thousands of names he makes up, they seem to fit so perfectly. He had an acute phonesthetic sense. And then the interesting thing is there's um, unpublished material in the Bodleian Library where Tolkien was playing around with uh, Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and trying to figure out the, the puns and the jokes. And the, there's Old English stuff in Finnegan's Wake. And so Tolkien, who claimed to never read anything written after 1830 and all of that, he was messing around with James Joyce. And not just, you know, Portrait of the Artist or Ulysses, but Finnegan's Wake, too. It's a different Tolkien than he liked to present. The other way that this sense and these words influenced his art is that Tolkien would come across a difficult, an unusual, a surprising word, and he would worry over it, and he would try to figure it out. And then when he couldn't figure it out, he'd make something up, which we discourage in our students, but when you're J.R.R. Tolkien, it tends to work out very well. And I'm going to give you a few of those words. Um, he had a, a student that, that was very a persistent student, Simone Dardenne, who worked on, on early Middle English, was, was a very good student, and did an edition of a text called The Life and the Passion of St. Juliana, which Tolkien thought was lineally descended from the Old English poem Juliana by Kinnewolf. Um, 
no one believes this today, but they should maybe. It's just been, oh, we can't prove it, so forget it. And We need to go back over. I wish, you really wish Tolkien was alive to say, well, you had a reason. Why? Why did you say this? But anyway, Simone Dardenne worked on The Life and the Passion of St. Juliana. She was working on it in the, the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. And that text happens to have the first English use of the word burglar in it. And what shows up as an important word in The Hobbit that Tolkien plays around with in all kinds of ways? Burglar. In fact, Shippey talks about Tolkien like burglar, but he's sort of bourgeois at the same time, and there's this little maybe a play going on there. And boy, wasn't Simone Dardenne working on that text, and wasn't Tolkien sitting in his office talking to her about the words in it? And there's been a lot of you know, criticism, I think probably unfair, that, that Tolkien really wrote that book, and Simone Dardenne just put her name on it. I think it's Actually, the opposite. Tolkien never got around to finishing anything unless people grabbed it out of his hands. And I think he was probably very grateful that she actually took some notes and he said, go publish it. <laughs> Which she didn't get to do until after World War II when she had been like caught up in the Nazi offensive in Belgium and was in all kinds of danger and then just showed up at his office with this bedraggled manuscript saying, can we finish this? So, so anyway, Tolkien had this, when he came across an unusual word, and he wanted to, he wouldn't just say, oh, we don't know what it means. And the, we don't know what it means. I do this to my Beowulf class. You should do this too. At one point, when we were taking Beowulf, I was studying with John Foley at the University of Missouri. And we're going through, and there's this line about Beowulf in icy gold. And nobody knows what this means. It's just, it's this one word. It has no other context to figure it out. And people started going, well, well. And John Foley suddenly goes, it means some sort of gold. Move on. And everyone's like, whoa, doctor. And then he said, oh, that's my, I just, my professor did that to me, so I had to do it to you. So I do it to my students now, too, you know, pass on this abuse. Because the poor student's like, whoa, why did I just get yelled at? But <laughs> the, the, the bigger point is when Tolkien came to, it's some sort of gold, move on, he wouldn't move on. He would start to say, I want to figure out what this kind of gold is. And if there wasn't enough evidence, he'd make something up. So let me give you some examples. In several places in Anglo-Saxon, we have a phrase, eld enta yewerch, means the old work of ents, except nobody knows what ents are. Ents are giants in some sense. They are connected with, with giants. They're glossed by gigantos, entos, and, and uh, gigantos. They're bad guys of some sort. But also, apparently, the Anglo-Saxons thought they build, built big stuff, it's big stuff that's usually Roman ruins. So what does Tolkien do? Well, he has this other idea at some point, and he's writing The Lord of the Rings, that Frodo is going to be captured by an evil giant named Treebeard. Treebeard was going to be a giant, not a, not a tree giant, and big, and evil, and he was going to capture Frodo. But as he mulled over this and everything else, he's like, you know, I think he's good. I think he's an ent. I think ents are tree people. I think the reason people call things the work of ents, they think the ents built them, but really, if we look at the story, the ents destroyed them. <laughs> And somebody else built them out of one word, right? It just is one more thing. What, what, what could explain this? And how could this work out? Well, look at how the Rohirrim, the Anglo-Saxon speakers in Lord of the Rings, look how they get Galadriel and the Golden Wood wrong. They know she's perilous and they know it's dangerous to go there. And so they interpret it totally backwards that she's evil rather than something else. Just like the Ents. Later days think Isengard's ruined. Oh, those Ents must have built that rather than the ants wrecked it. And that's, that's how his mind worked in, in various ways. Another example is Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. There's this enigmatic word. Nobody knows what it means. Wuduwasa. 
Actually, it's Wuduhasa and Tolkien decide the manuscript was wrong. It was really Wuduhasa. And what does it mean? Woodwoses. Well, that's helpful. No one has any idea what a Woodwose is, though if you know anyone whose last name is Woodhouse, it might actually have been Woodwose originally in the past. Probably a dweller in the woods or something like that. Tolkien turns it into Gunbury Gone and the wild men of the woods who, who live in, and, and are hunted and oppressed by the Rohirrim. The Rohirrim call them wild Woodwoses. Turns out that they're pretty good guys in the end. But this is also an enigmatic word. Nobody knows what it means in Gowan and the Green Knight. Other ones where the word wasn't completely enigmatic, but Tolkien wanted you to use it in the right way. And this is one of my favorites, the weapon take. And this is where Peter Jackson got it totally wrong in the movie and where everybody gets weapon take wrong. Weapon take is actually originally a measure of land or measure of, of a weapon take is a certain size land in the north of England. It comes from Old Norse. But what it really means is not, we'll all show up and get our weapons from the king. I mean, think that through. The king has to have huge wagons full of weapons and a place to store them and everything else. The weapon take was when you showed up with your weapons and took up your arms for the king in your service. But I love it how they had like these barrels of swords and everyone runs by and just grabs a sword. Oh, that looks like a good one. I mean, you have to, you have to know a little bit more about medieval culture to realize how valuable a sword, like, when you hear about sword, like think of Mercedes, okay? So like, oh, the king has a barrel full of Mercedes. We'll just go pick one up and use it. No, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. But it fits so beautifully into the Lord of the Rings that you don't know it, right? You say the weapon take is set for that particular day. That's when everyone needed to show up. They showed up with their armor and their weapons and whatever they had. That was actually the, the service price that they were required to pay for having the, the armor and, and weapons. Another example shows up in The Hobbit where the word hamsoken is used. And hamsoken is a legal term. And, and it's, at one point, they're going to, Tolkien's got to, C.S. Lewis, by the way, uses this in, um, oh, now I'm going to draw a blank onto which text he uses it. You are guilty of the crime of hamsoken. It means home invasion. But Tolkien decided it was, and it meant if someone was guilty of hamsoken, you could kill them. They broke into your house. You could just kill them right there. There was no like you know proportional response or anything else. They stepped foot in your door, dead. You know, <laughs> Middle Ages, Texas. You know, <laughs> kind of. And there are some things to be said for that on one side and the other. But the, the bigger point was that this is this is Tolkien dropped that because he didn't think it quite fit. I'll give you another where he was stuck and he couldn't find anything else to use. And I think and I'm pretty sure that he was troubled by this. Uh, and that is in the description of the, the king of the Golden Hall's Golden Hall, Edoras, which means the courts, and Medusel, which means Mead Hall. And it's described in all these Anglo-Saxon terms. It's got pillars. It's got tapestries on the walls, but they're called webs, which means weaving. If you know anyone named Webster, that means their families were weavers at some point. It's uh, webs, storied webs, and people thought they were spider webs. At least my daughter did, um, okay, she was six. But still, um, some people I'm sure do. But they're tapestries, the woven things, and there's pillars and there's flagstones on the floor. It's totally Anglo-Saxon, except in the roof is a louver. And the reason I think this was important to Tolkien is that description that Tolkien uses is almost word for word from William Morris's House of the Wolfings. It is, and I don't think Tolkien had it in front of him. I think he'd read House of the Wolf thing so many times that when it came time to describe a Germanic hall, this is what he comes down with. But how are you going to let the smoke out when you don't have glass windows, you don't have chimneys, you need something? Well, William Morris didn't like that Louvre was so obviously French either. So he spelled it Luffer, made it an English word. 
But this was philologically wrong. You can't do that. And it, I, I, I think Tolkien just, uh, I have to use Louvre anyway, and couldn't get rid of it. But it's very weird. It's jarring. Ship even mentioned it's the only non-Anglo-Saxon word in that entire passage. Because there wasn't an Anglo-Saxon word that, that survived down to us for a smoke hole with a cap on it in, in, the, uh, in the roof of the, of the building. So this is about individual words. And to be a good reader of Tolkien, this is the other side I want to like be evangelizing here, to be a good reader of Tolkien, you have to pay attention to individual words, and in a good way. Because some people don't do this well. I want to talk about the word eot. Okay, E-Y-O-T. Because uh, Catherine Simpson, Catherine Stimson, sorry, is, is a very important feminist critic. Uh, people that I know who know her say she's very smart and that she's not like this. But, I mean, Tolkien's work is like kryptonite to some people. It just, their brains leak out their ears when they, when they start to try to talk about Tolkien. I don't know why uh, exactly. So Stimson claims that Tolkien shuns ordinary diction. He wrenches syntax, asserting that instead of well, she's asserting that instead of saying they came to an island, Tolkien will say to the Eot, they came. Well, problem number one, Tolkien never writes, and I have an electronic version of the Lord of the Rings, so I checked. Tolkien never wrote the phrase to the Eot, they came. So, eh, one. But number two, what, by the way, this happens all the time. Critics of Tolkien criticize him for saying things he never said. It's really bizarre. Like there's a, they, they make up something instead of finding it. and it's the, the, I have at least eight examples, but I'm not going to go into all of them right now. But let's look at eot. The word eot seems strange. You might not know eot unless, you know, someone read Lord of the Rings to you when you were four and I was calling things eots when I was seven, you know, because, like, that's what it was. But more importantly, it's an Anglo-Saxon word. It was originally ait, A-I-T, which means small island, and Tolkien interpreted this further and thought it was a technical term because he looked on the map and saw the things that were labeled ats, and they weren't big islands. They were things that got washed over when the rain was up or the tide came in. And he decided that he thinks an eot is a technical term for an island that's sometimes submerged, that when you know heavy spring rains, it's underwater. Right? Well, why is this important? Because that's exactly, precisely, like they tell you in creative writing, use the exact right word, not a sort of right word, and that's what Tolkien did. But critics are saying, oh, he uses an unfamiliar word. Unfamiliar to you, not necessarily unfamiliar to him. But this is the, the important point. And that Tolkien also, he was well aware that eot was not a common word because he thought about it and he'd chosen this particular one. But he knew you could figure it out anyway. And that is one of his other pieces of, of brilliance. He can use technical terms, eot, weapon take, kum, matham, you don't know what they are, but you do from the context. And it creates that, that feeling that everything works in the Lord of the Rings. Everything fits together, right? Coom, uh, the deeping coom, it's Celtic for deep valley. It shows up, uh, it's spelled C-W-M in Welsh, but it, it's in mount, parts of Mount Everest are called the, the coom and so forth, where you, where you would stop. Matham is the Anglo-Saxon word for treasure. And you can sort of see how this, this all works out. It, it's individual words, it's right things, but, and it's a love of words. And then it's playing with words. And this is what the Lord of the Rings did for Tolkien, is it let him have fun with this also. Give you an example from Rohan. Now, I'm very fond of Rohan because I wouldn't be a professor, at least of, of Anglo-Saxon, if it weren't for Rohan. Because I recognize the phrase, West Thu Hall, 
that Tolkien used has his people say, Westu Theoden Hall. And my professor of the University of Missouri, I was there for creative writing, but I noticed the course catalog and he'd written the old English course and at the end of it he wrote Westu Hall. I'm like, I know that. I'm gonna take that course. And like after the second day, I'm like, I'm a professor of Anglo Saxon, forget this creative writing thing. Like it was so much fun, it was so great. But so the the, the Rohirrim speak Anglo Saxon. They say things like West Thu Hal. West is just was, Thu Thu is thou, and Hal is hail. Like not hail, but like hail and hearty. West Thu Hal, be you well, Theoden, which means king. Be you well, king. In fact, the king's name is King King. His father's name is Thingle, which is King King. So Fengal, King King, Helm, King King, Freilof, King King, Brago, King King. The first one is Errol, is Errol so it's uh, King Earl. So he wasn't a king yet because he hadn't moved to Rohan. There's only one name in all the lists of the kings of Rohan whose name is doesn't mean king, and that's Deor, and I don't know why it's there. It drives me crazy. Now, this is just Middle-earth studies to a certain point, but it takes you outside of Middle-earth into Tolkien studies when you know what these words mean. And Tolkien's making a larger point, and it is, as you might guess, about words. Because the Rohirrim, the, Anglos, the, the Anglo-Saxon speakers, he made clear that they are not Anglo-Saxons in any way. Well, except that they speak Anglo-Saxon, live in Anglo-Saxon houses, have Anglo-Saxon weapons, but yeah, they're not Anglo-Saxon, we get it. Um, the Rohirrim are somehow related to the hobbits linguistically, Right? The, the Rohirrim and the hobbits can sort of understand each other. There's these old-fashioned words. And the Rohirrim start calling hobbits holbitla, hole dweller, which Tolkien did not when he starts out with the word in, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He had no idea that it was connection to Anglo-Saxon holbitla. And as Tom Sheppey points out, the first sentence in the Lord of the Rings in, in Hobbit is in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And the very last sentence in the very last appendix of the return of the king is about the word Holbitla. So Tolkien finally came all the way around to the word again in the end and made up an etymology for it where he had not made up that he had not known that when he when the word came to him. But if you look at the the Shire, especially in the Hobbit, in, in you know in the Bilbo narrative all the things are named with just capital letters. There's the hill, the water, the you know the mill, and so forth, right? And even when they have sort of names, towns like Bywater, because it's by the water, and so forth. The Shire, the county, right, or where we live. And that's his point is that when you live in a small isolated area, you don't necessarily come up with a lot of complicated names like Cope's Neck or something. I noticed that I was driving in here all the necks and points because of the the geo- you know the geography. Right, you have a, a neck is a narrow, and I was thinking that my dad lives in Colts Neck, in New Jersey, and everyone thinks that Colts Neck re- applies to that. There's lots of horses there, and I realized that can't possibly be the case. It's Colts Neck because Mr. Colt owns some narrow piece of land somewhere, and I realized there's other Colt places around. This is being an etymologist again. You start to think of these things. It was Cox's Neck that did it. I drove past. I'm like, oh, that got me. So, what's going on with the Rohirrim then? Is they're sort of like the Hobbits where they have really named the king, he's just king, right? And his father was the other king, and the king before him. Before them, there's, okay, well, there's there's um, there's Eorl, right? And before him, Eorl's father is Laod, and Laod is Anglo-Saxon for leader of a people, rather than like a title of nobility, just plain old leader. Now, being Tolkien, there's another level to this too, which is that if you go to the appendices, which of course you all do, right, I mean, uh, read the appendices, and you read in Appendix A that Errol the Young and his father Laod, who came from southern Mirkwood to Rohan, 
had other ancestors from that area who had names like Marhiwini and Marhari and Vidugavia. Get it? Didn't think anyone would because it's an inside joke that only Tolkien knew at the time. All those names are Gothic, right? They're all Gothic. So, and they're Gothic with Latinized spelling. And then their ancestors speak Anglo-Saxon. So why is that significant? Because Tolkien's setting up a system where the ancestors, the Anglo-Saxons, might be Goths. And why is that significant? Because where we started in Beowulf, the good guys in Beowulf are the, well, they're technically pronounced the Yeats, but I call them Geats like everyone else, because I think if you go around saying Yeats, you're like one of those annoying people from NPR who says, in a perfect American accent until they get to, and now reporting from Nicaragua, you know, it's like, wow, you had high school Spanish, so I'm not going to do the Anglo-Saxon version of that and say Yeats all the time, but the Geats, the people of the tribe, no, why are they, why are, why are there's, it's a poem written entirely in English, and there is not one mention of an English place, of England itself, or any English names. Why is this? It's a mystery. Nobody knows. And Tolkien wasn't even willing to come out and say what he thought, but what he thought was that the ancestors of the Anglo-Saxons were Goths, and somebody had confused Goths for Geats, and assumed that when they are writing about Geats, they were writing about Anglo-Saxon ancestors. And how do I know this? Because in the little published fragment of Tolkien's Beowulf translation, he translates Geatsland as Gothland. Nobody else seems to have noticed that it's right there, that he, that he puts it in there. So, and and he, he couldn't publish that in studies in philology or medium avum because there's not enough evidence, but he could make it up and hide it in the appendices and get it to work. But it, it's even more important there because it works to give the Lord of the Rings that illusion of depth that everyone loves so much about the poem. About the, I call it a poem. Well, it's almost like a poem. It's not exactly... And I, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to say what that means, because this is where Tolkien is not just this, this wacko Oxford guy who liked hobbits and elves, though he was, and that's good. He was a modernist, even though he hated modernism, because he was trying to create a Gestamtkunstwerk, which is what I saw people start writing. <laughs> Don't you love German? As Mark Twain said, you have a verbal prefix at the beginning, you have a verb at the end of the sentence, and in between you just shovel in the German. But <laughs> Did I write that right? Gesamtkunstwerk, yes. A Gesamtkunstwerk is the complete artwork. And the example of that is usually uh, Wagner's ring cycle. Wagner, he wrote the libretto, and he wrote the music, and he designed the sets, and he talked about what the costumes, and he picked the performers, and he wanted it all to work perfectly. And people will say, some people except for the kind of, I'll be polite, questionable politics of Wagner and, and other things like that, will say that this is the greatest you know, artwork of the 19th century or something like that. Uh, you know, The complete artwork. That's what Tolkien was trying to do with The Lord of the Rings. He wanted it to be the complete artwork. He wanted the book of Masarbul that's burned up. He wanted in, in the Mines of Moria that's stabbed and bloody and burned. He made facsimiles of it and set it on fire and chopped it up and stuff like that. And he wanted that in the book. He had maps. He had... You know, everything around it. And, and this is the important point. Anybody can, well, not anybody, but you can do that. You know, I did that with my Dungeons and Dragons campaign in seventh grade, you know, and <laughs> destroyed my mother's iron and got in real trouble because I put lemon juice on a th- map and then ironed it to make it turn. And then she went and ironed some clothes and, ah, <laughs> uh, the rules against child beating were different back then. Um, but, 
what, what Tolkien, but it's different. What Tolkien did is he, he had that, that philological training so he could make it all fit. It's what Germans would call a Lautsprache, a, a phonetic speech, what Joyce would talk about, the, the phonesthetic sense. That's why when you read it and you think Mordor is perfect, that Mor does mean dark, and all those other more words than Morgulvale and Moria pick up there. And that's why the Lorian and the, the, the Finnish sound of, of uh, Quenya is, is a fit to everything else that he's, he's creating. And, and I think that's enormously important. And... and and it's something to look at when you when you set, Faulk, set set Tolkien alongside people like William Faulkner, who was trying to do that with the Yaknapatofa County stories and put it all together. And even I know this is heresy with Toni Morrison and what she does in Beloved with dialect and with people's names and with the way that, that time intercuts and everything else. Tolkien was doing it in a different way. He has the frame narrative. Right, which is like as I lay dying in Faulkner a little bit in, in its own way. And Tolkien is not interested in the kind of minute details of psychology that is what literature has been since Jane Austen ruined it. I mean, um, <laughs> I had to say something provocative, right? <laughs> since Jane Austen sent literature in a particular direction by being enormously great at what she did, but there were other kinds of literature available also that were not about minute observations of people's thoughts and, and, and interpersonal behavior, but were about things like heroism, like big-time um, conduct in, in extraordinary situations. And actually, I will say that that's where I love Toni Morrison, because Beloved does both, right? Beloved is about extraordinary situations. Where would you kill your own child to keep it from going into slavery and what kind of ghosts would, would come from that? And also those little, you know, in, immensely important details. But Tolkien is, is interested in other things. He's interested in the epic. He's interested in language and the way it changes and how to make up new things if you don't already have them there. And my big point in this talk was to, is to convince you that that kind of love of language is, is valuable in its own right. It's valuable because it unlocks things. And it's valuable because it's the foundation of everything. So I'm going to close by showing how this all comes together from really one word. And we know that Tolkien encountered this when he was an undergraduate. Um, he, he wrote about this in, in, in his journals and other people mention it. And this is an old English poem called, uh, very creatively, Christ Two because uh, it's the second poem about Christ in the, in the Exeter book. And the line is this, Ela erndil, englabertost, over midanierd monum sended. Hail, Arundel, it's really there, the brightest of angels sent to men upon Middle Earth. So in that one pair of lines, Tolkien's got Arundel and Middle Earth coming from Anglo-Saxon. And Tolkien wanted to know, who is this Arundel? So he started looking into the word. And it turns out that there's an Orvandil in the poem Gilfaginning. He's a companion of Thor. They go wading in icy water. It gets frostbite. So Thor takes his frostbitten toe, breaks it off, and throws it up into the sky where it becomes the planet Venus, well, the star Venus, the morning star. And there's other Orvandils elsewhere that are related to the star. So who's Arundel? He's the morning star. He's Venus. That wasn't enough. Tolkien didn't like the frozen toe part of it at all. You know, he's the brightest of angels. He's somebody's frozen, amputated toe. You know, it just doesn't quite work. So, so what else is going on here? Tolkien's pondering on that, and he's kind of making up his own Arundel story. And where does Arundel come from? And he makes up the Silmaril eventually, and that Arundel sailed. But what does Arundel sail? He sails a ship. 
He sells a ship named Vingilot. Why is it named Vingilot? And this is where it comes from. In Chaucer, in line 1424 of the Merchant's Tale, Chaucer says, And eka dise old widwes, God it wot, fe corne soon mutual craft on wad is bought. And that means, and also these old widows, God knows, they think so much, they put so much craft about Wade's boat. What's Wade's boat? Chaucer throws it in there. And in the most infuriating and maddening line in all of Chaucer criticism, in 1598, Mr. Spate says, Concerning Wade and his boat called Gwingilat, as also his strange exploits in the same, because the matter is long and fabulous, I pass it over. We have no other information about Wade's boat, stupid jerk one, because you knew it. He thought everybody knew it. He didn't bother to write it down. <laughs> so we don't know what Wade's boat is, except we know that Wade's boat's name is Gwingilot. And Tolkien took this boat, Gwingilot, connected with Wade, which is actually probably connected with this Orvindil character and his frozen toe also, and he puts it together with, with Arendil, except he puts it together with his mythology and with the bright angel. Why? Because the word angel in Greek means... Anyone? Messenger. An angel is a messenger, which is what Arendil is. It's all about the words again. Tolkien goes back, and what's, what's this word, Arendil? What does it mean? He's, he's an angel according to this, and an angel is a messenger, and so Arendil must be a messenger, and he's going to have a boat, and it's named Wingelot, and what does that mean? I'm going to make an elvish language up that will fit Wingelot into it, and wait, the language needs in the background some history, and there needs to be a reason that he's going back, and here we've got another story, and another story, and another story on top of it, and all of a sudden you've got the core of this mythology that's so powerful and that hangs together. And even if you don't understand it at all because you're like one of my bad students who skips the poems and you didn't read, Arundel was a mariner. I give all my, I told my students their first exam in Tolkien is entirely on the poems. Like every question is answer is in a poem so that they have to read the poems. But the poems tell all the background and people skip them. But Arundel was a mariner who tarried in Arvernian. We don't know where Arvernian is or any of these other things. So if you read that poem, you've got the background and it all came from one word. And that's what I hope you take away from all of this, is that it all for Tolkien came back to these individual words. It's a different way of looking at language. And it's a really fun and addicting way of looking at language. And I wanted to encourage you to do that, whether you become, you know, whether you're a medievalist, whether you're a literary person at all, whether you just are like, you know, educated people at a liberal arts college who like to read there's a real enjoyment to be gotten out of tracing those words, which then since the Oxford English Dictionary is online, since you can find these things, it's really worth doing. Check out your own name sometime and figure out what that means. I discovered that my family had been wrong about my own name forever. Droughts and Ellis Island name, um, we were D-R-A-U-D-T when we came over, and I thought it was related to draft and like a heavy plow, and that we come from a place with stony soil, and that was the family legend. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It's related to the name Gertrude. It means beloved uh, in German. It had nothing exciting there. But but names, I had a friend who was Womack. His name means hollow oak. They live, their family in the distant past, live somewhere near, near a hollow oak. And there's so many um, things like that, whether they're names or place names or individual words. And so that's what I wanted to, to get to you today, is that you can make whole worlds out of those words, and it's really fun and enlightening to do so. Thank you very much for having me.
few minutes for questions, if anyone has questions like that. It's not going to be about Jane Austen, is it? No. <laughs> okay. It's actually about fish. Um, okay. <laughs> so, I know we talked about this in our smoking class, but I was wondering your thoughts on Tyrion upon tuna. <laughs> <laughs> that Tyrion upon tuna, for, for everyone uh, who is not in the Tolkien class, this is the, the great beautiful hill in the elvish sort of worldly paradise of Valinor, um, where the, the city is, there's a beautiful city built, and the, it is spelled... Um, You'd really like to have a, uh, <laughs> right? Wouldn't you really, it would be much better if it was Tunya and you wouldn't feel as bad. Um, I don't know, it, you know, sometimes things slip by him, especially in the Silmarillion. John Garth has an interesting piece where he looks at the very earliest versions of, of that. And you know how Tolkien has this beautiful word for silver, um, Caleb, that we get Celeborn and, and some of the, uh, Celebrian and some of the others. But his original spelling, he thought it would look better if it was... I'm not making that up either. Club. Um, that seems very silvery to me, right? The, the point is, and this is, you know, I'll give you another example. Um, Strider, who became Aragorn, was originally a hobbit named Trotter who wore wooden shoes or had wooden feet even. There's, a, there's some, dis- he'd been tortured by the Dark Lord and so had to wear shoes or maybe even have prosthetic wooden feet. Um, and Trotter. Trotter persisted forever. Mariadoc's name was Marmaduke. Um, um, and my favorite one is that Frodo was Bingo. For a long time. I mean, like, multiple drafts, you know. So what I tell my students is, revise, revise, revise. Right? You could be stuck with Club and Marmaduke, and, and the world might be... Or, or actually, the other one is that um, in The Hobbit, Gandalf's original name was Bladderthin. <laughs> And again, that persisted through whole drafts until he's like, Bladderthin, not a good name for the wizard. Like, <laughs> you think? But, but that's, that's, you know, part of, so I, I mean, Tyrion upon Tuna, I, 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 I don't know. You know, I, like I said, if you put, if you put a little mark there and then you could say Tunya and then fix it, but that may be as bad as those annoying newscasters who, who are, are really unwilling to say that, you know, of the seventh planet that there are mysterious dark rings around Uranus. They just don't like that and say, you know, change the name. I remember Tom Brokaw calling it Uranus. I'm like, what is Uranus? I don't get it. I guess, uh, I noticed a certain link in, uh, some Eurasian languages, um, in Italian, French, and Spanish, we all have Mao, and um, in Chinese and Japanese, it's like Mazaku or Ma, Fang Yao. So, like, I'm wondering, why did the English language not have uh, an M-A for the word for bad? So, like, all, all the other Eurasian I don't, I don't know the answer there. The, the problem is when you try to get up past the, the top, so you have your, your um, Indo-European tree, right? Everything above that is like absolute linguistic bloodbath and people, <laughs> people like are crazy and hate each other and can't figure it out. So like even, even something that seemed pretty straightforward, like a lot of people wanted to say that Finnish was connected to Central Asian languages and from them to Korean, I was taught that in graduate school. Now that's like you're a complete moron if you say that. I'm like, really? Unfortunately, I said it to a bunch of Finns and got like told, no, you have no idea what you're talking about. So the, the problem with those, the language trees, anything to connect back, is there seems to be uh, no agreement about what the sound changes would have been to connect up anything out of the Indo-European tree with 
the the major African trees with the um, Native American side of things and with uh, the Asian languages. So there's very, very good linguistics done between all the various Asian languages, but the connection is, is unknown. So I don't have a good answer um, for that. Yes? Um, I've read a little bit about truth conditional semantics, and I was wondering... Um, Your students are too smart. <laughs> um, and I was wondering what you thought about... Um, since Tolkien writes so much about hobbits and things that don't exist in the primary world, how he thought that those things gather meaning. Well, yeah, that's a that's a tough a tough one because Tolkien sometimes writes like in on fairy stories, right? He writes as if elves and fairies are real. Like and then he says, of course they're not real, but when they do this, it's like, you know what? Is, I, I I actually hate on fairy stories because it is so. Tangled and digressive and confusing, and I don't think he actually makes his argument because I think he's trying to make two arguments that that are not uh, compatible with each other, and he wants to make both of them, and so he just makes it so complex. That's a very minority view in Tolkien studies, so you shouldn't trust me on that one. You should read like Verlin Flieger or one of the people who really knows and understands on fairy stories. But I think that Tolkien thought that that I'll take it not so much with hobbits but with elves that that elves were his creation of elves was a part of human nature that really did exist, but that he had amplified it in some way and cleared off other aspects of it. So there's the, the creative and you know the Noldor and the making part and the and the loving the woods for what they are part and you know the part of human nature that, that what or as he would put it, what humans would be like if they really were immortal and could could do certain things. So I think that's where, where it comes from with Elves and Hobbits. I mean, Hobbits are Tolkien's sort of uh, a cross between, I mean, I think really in the end, t- Hobbits are Tolkien's childhood in the Warwickshire countryside, but then he realized he didn't want to write another book with all, you know, Bilbo's not a child, but he's childish in The Hobbit. He didn't want to do that. And so he just has them be adult Hobbits. But they're, they're small so that they see the world from, from that height and they're not able to impose their will on things by physical violence like big people are. And that's very much like children in, in some ways. Again, not exactly. So I would say that um, they don't things don't have to exist in the real world if parts of them do, and you can mix and match and put them together. The same way you can make new words out of existing morphemes, even if they're not allowed in English. So like club, um, you're, you allowed, you're allowed to have TL in English just in the middle or end of words, like cattle and battle. When you see it at the beginning of a word that you know it's not an English word, like the uh, Aztec uh, rain god. You know, everyone has a favorite Aztec rain god, and mine is Tlaloc. So that's where you get those those TLs showing up at the beginning of words. You know they're not English, though we can certainly pronounce it with no problem, right? You can say Tlaloc till the cows come home, or the rain starts, or whatever you're supposed to do. But <laughs> you can't. Uh, you, you're not allowed to, you know, make up a regular word that begins with TL. I guess you could make up a name, but not a uh, noun or a verb. Yes. What was that bit that Corey mentioned about working on a project with DNA on manuscripts or something? Yes, this is this is uh, conveniently abbreviated the Crazy Sheep DNA Project, and it started years ago. A guy named Scott McLemy for the Inside Inside Higher Ed, um, he put out this call on various weblogs of like, what book do you want to read ten years from now? Like as a weird, you know, I said, well, I want to read my own book that says that we extracted DNA from medieval manuscripts, used it to trace which actual pieces of manuscript were related to which other ones, and got a whole new view of the circulation and creation of, of things. And he's like, wow, that would be so cool if you did that. Are you working on it? And I said, I wasn't up till this point. Um, 
So I started working on it. It was actually an idea by a professor named Greg Rose who, who told me that, you know, but he said they'll never let you take the samples, which he was right. I, um, the art historian at Wheaton, we have a 14th century book of hours, and she says that if I ever try to get near it, she's going to pat frisk me first to make sure I don't have scissors. So I'm like, you know, a corner, just a corner. <laughs> but the Sheep DNA Project has been working on kind of multiple fronts um, it started as summer interdisciplinary research where I, I taught a student paleography and my colleague in biology taught her uh, polymerase chain reaction for uh, amplification of DNA. And then what we've been doing recently is extracting DNA from modern parchment and trying to see how small a sample size we can get. We've got it down to under 10 milligrams. Um, the problem is that the primers that you use for ovine DNA tend to be easily, con- easily influenced by human DNA. I mean, who knew? Right? But if you have human DNA mixed in with your thing, it's going to amplify along with the sheep DNA, and it creates some problems there. That's where we are right now. I also partnered up with a group of students from Northwestern University to design a DNA extractor. And so what this is, it's so great to be like an English professor and say, the prototype of the extractor is on my desk. <laughs> but, and if I knew it, I would have brought it. But it's this, they, they built this thing for their final engineering project, and it's basically a giant like needle, and you put a glass needle on the end of it, and it is guided into the very edge of the manuscript. It's a micron fine, like a 10 micron wide or something glass needle. And parchment, it turns out, sticks to glass. So you poke it in the inside of the, the leaf and pull it out and you just grind up the glass, let it sink to the bottom of the uh, DNA of the, the thing that dissolves the parchment and so forth. And the idea is that you don't do any visible damage to the manuscript. So, and, event, and I have some computer science students who are working on the database and the interface and stuff like that. So what I want to be able to do is go to a funding agency or, you know, a wealthy philanthropist and say, look, we've proven it can work. So we've proven it can work for modern parchment. We've proven that this, we have to do it with medieval parchment now, and then we'll have the whole line of things. And then I want to, the, the, the students at Northwestern next year, another group, are going to design modify the extractor to make it so that you can make thousands of them cheaply in a factory in Shanghai somewhere. And I want to you know, disseminate them to all the libraries uh, that have manuscripts and get people to send these things back to me. And hopefully we can find out. I mean, what I really want to find out is where Beowulf was written. But if you say that, they think you're crazy. So you have to say, you know, you're building a whole thing up. and you know, doing, So that's, that's that project, um, which is it's, it's a lot of fun. It gives me the excuse to hang out in the Science Center. Which is that one in my the lexomics one that that uh, Professor Olson mentioned that I'm doing with a computer scientist and a uh, statistician and finding patterns in texts and it actually worked. We were shocked. Like we have a technique that can find divisions in texts based on um, vocabulary of them, which is really cool. So, that, that's, but it gives me my excuse to hang out in the science center. All the you're here in the science center now. Uh, all English majors should spend more time hanging out in the science center. You get um, you get material. And scientists are and scientists are really really keen on sharing what they're working on with you too. Scientists love to talk, uh, even more than English professors. Scientists like to talk about their research, and I like to listen, so it works out pretty well. Anything else? Well, let's thank our guests again.